I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. I'm in sensory overload, feeling everything to you know a much higher degree than I would usually. It's absolutely amazing. It's always been my go-to, like, you should read this book. You should pay attention to it. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. As midlife crises go, taking up lockpicking with the aim of breaking into someone's house seems, well, extreme. But when B, the protagonist of Don Gilmore's novel Breaking and Entering, finds herself mired in middle-aged malaise, she gives it a try. And by breaking in, she hopes to break out of the predictable routine of her life. Ryan B. Patrick talks with Don Gilmore in a half an hour from now. And my own midlife change-up was going from my food career as a chef and caterer to comedy. But I still like to cook, especially as the weather turns. It's a good time to get back into the kitchen. Saeed M. Dahuma is a pastry chef, so he's in the kitchen year-round. And he joins me later today to recommend three of his favorite cookbooks. But first, Iram Shazia Hassan on what it means to be charitable and what can happen when the best intentions of humanitarians are muddied by power and personal bias. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. In her day job, Iram Shazia Hassan is a sustainable development consultant for various UN agencies. She's worked all over the world and seen complicated dynamics of aid and charity play out in many countries. And the dynamics become very complicated in her debut novel, We Meant Well. Maya, a humanitarian worker, is home in Los Angeles when she gets a call to return to the village where she had spent many years running a charitable orphanage. One of Maya's trusted colleagues there has been accused of assaulting a young local girl, a girl who was Maya's former protege. And from there, the novel explores power, morality, and the complications of meaning well. Iram Shazia Hassan joins me now in Toronto. Hello and welcome to the next chapter. Hi, Ali. Thanks for having me. Aram, I should let people know that I've known you for many years. And the person that I knew had this career that took her away from home, away from her family for stretches at a time to work abroad, designing initiatives for international aid agencies. Little did I know there's also a Giller long-listed <laughs> novelist. So this comes as a huge surprise <laughs> to me. Uh, was How long has this book been in the works? As soon as you started doing this work, you said maybe there's a book that could come out of it? I think I always wanted to write, um, but I've been working for, on this book for eight years. Okay. <laughs> it took I, I wrote it in about a year and a half, but then you know the processes of editing, which seem endless, and then mm. getting an agent and then getting a publisher. So the whole thing took uh, about over eight years. How did your career experiences shape the story in We Meant Well? So the job of a sustainable development consultant means that I get to travel to many different countries in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. And that experience allowed me to meet so many different humanitarians, aid workers, uh, that are working in countries that are not their own. And they're not there as migrants, and they're not there as expats, um, but they're there to do good, so to speak. And I was fascinated by this cohort of people who are sort of in this bizarre space between their own countries and these uh, the places where they work. And I wanted to capture a little bit of the dynamic that they have with the people that they work with and for, and as well as um, to showcase the nuances and how they all interact with each other. There's complicated relationships, there's friendships, um, and also how challenging it is to work in a place that is not your own country, and then also c- the challenges of coming back home. In reading some background on the novel, I, I saw that you were talking about how the story came to you when you were working with the UN vehicle in Haiti. Tell me what happened there that sparked your imagination. So Haiti is a place that I've worked for a long time. And just to clarify, the book is not situated in Haiti. But I had arrived in Haiti. It was in the middle of February, and there was a, had been a cold a polar vortex here in Toronto. Mm. And I always feel like when I'm working in warm countries in the winter, I've gone from black and white to technicolor. So immediately, all my I'm in sensory overload, feeling everything to you know a much higher degree than I would usually. 
And I arrived in Haiti, and I remembered how the first time I had come to Haiti, which had been like five years before, I had been terrified because I had been given all this documentation about how to avoid getting kidnapped. Hmm. So I wasn't supposed to sit and get in a taxi. I wasn't supposed to leave the airport. Um, and I had a two and a three-year-old back home. And yet what they hadn't clarified is that to get picked up, I had to leave the airport. So I was standing in the airport waiting to get picked up. No one's coming. And I'm like, I think I have to leave. But what if I get kidnapped? And then five years later, I'm back in that country. I knew it well. I was comfortable. It was warm. You know, the, the flowers were in bloom. And suddenly I got into this UN vehicle and I thought about a character that was coming back and having to confront something from her past. Uh, and I immediately excused myself to the person driving the car and I said, okay, I'm going to just start writing. I just have an idea about a novel. And that's basically chapter two, which takes place in a, in a car. As you mentioned, that village that you created for the novel is mm -hmm. fictional in a, in a fictional country that we, we, we never find out about. It's called Lakani. Can you describe the setting and what, what you drew on when you were fleshing out this, this, this fictional town? Mm -hmm. So Lekani is basically, it's an artificial place in an artificial continent. And the reason I didn't want to specify a particular place was because um, I didn't want to represent another culture. I didn't want to represent a different country, especially in literature. If we write about places that are not covered in the mainstream, they become a sort of ambassador of a particular people or culture, and I did not want that role. Um, so instead, I drew upon the experiences of various post-colonial societies and picked up on common threads that I saw there. So even if I work in different countries in Asia or Africa or the Caribbean, and they may be very diverse in culture, religion, classes, structures, um, I found that there were certain similarities of societies that had been colonized previously. So I drew that to build Lakani. And there's nods to different places different foods, flowers, and things that I refer to in the text. But really, it's those elements that I've brought in to, to construct Lakani. The novel is Maya's story, and Maya's colleague has been accused of assaulting a young local girl, the daughter of the chief, someone that Maya mentored, as I, I mentioned off the top. And to further complicate things, that accused man is a colleague of Maya's. Um, tell me, what does Maya make of that situation? I think Maya doesn't know what to make of that situation. I think she's thrown into this circumstance. Um, and I think I wanted her to be so confused because I think we have larger expectations of ourselves of what we would do in that kind of a circumstance or how we would feel if someone was accused or especially following the Me Too movement. There's a very clear idea of how we should act. And yet when it's somebody that you know, it's somebody that you've worked with, it's somebody that you've seen do charitable acts before, how does that problematize this circumstance? So I wanted to capture this dual tension of one is a protege of hers, someone that she was meant to protect, and another is a colleague uh, who she has seen through very challenging times as a comrade, really. In trying to figure out the details of the um, alleged assault Maya's caught between the young girl and her colleague, uh, both people that she's been close with in, in the past, and she strives to learn the truth, but her own biases obviously affect her beliefs. What did you want to explore by putting Maya in that situation? I think just how flawed we are as people, how difficult it is to believe certain things, especially if we have our own notions about individuals. I think I also wanted to capture a little bit of uh, the fact that there are no clear answers in these kinds of circumstances um, and to give her a moment of grace also to question and, and challenge herself, but also how her personal circumstances sometimes dominate this. So while this is one of the most challenging issues, and you would think that she would be so focused on this crime. She is sort of taken on, she is taken over by her own personal circumstances and her own personal life. And so that shows that, you know, as huge as this issue might be, um, her personal <laughs> worries kind of take over and cloud her judgment. Maya left Lakani because she wanted to, quote unquote, uh, have a more normal life but she feels caught between these two worlds and she doesn't feel like she belongs in either, something that many people would recognize and identify with. Can you talk a little bit more about that internal struggle that she, she mm -hmm. finds herself in? I think Maya has set up for herself different ideals. So when she started as a humanitarian, she had this ideal of going and saving the world and helping people and finding herself through that. 
And then she goes back into her world and she wants to be, you know, she's the wife of an affluent man. Uh, she, she has a child. She gets married and she's trying to create this ideal of what it means to be an American, a successful American. And the struggle there is where is she in that? And she's kind of following these sort of idealized paths. But where is her authentic self to be found in those kind of um, expectations? On this note of authentic self, Maya is experiencing problems back home with her marriage. I know your actual husband of many years. I, of course, hope that this is all fiction. <laughs> it uh, is. <laughs> although she is across the world, how does she bring her personal life into her uh, her work life? How do those problems affect how she operates in Lakani? Mm-hmm. I wanted to juxtapose the personal and the political. And yes, my marriage is fine. A lot of friends have worried about that and have sent angry emails to my husband. <laughs> We're all good. What have you done? <laughs> what have you done to her? Exactly. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but the reason I wanted to frame it that way is, you know, for example, if we look at the political, we have expectations of political leaders. We get disappointed if they lie to us, if they betray us in any way. And yet um, there's people who who are very close to us in our in, in our lives, who lie to us all the time. And so I wanted to sort of pu- juxtapose those two relationships together of like how big a violation it feels when someone close to you lies to you. And so what can you expect of, of the bigger world around you? Mm. Bigger Boss is the name that has been given to Maya by the people of Lakani because they regarded her as a, as a big boss during the time that she lived and worked there. I was in Jamaica once, um, all-inclusive. And for some reason, these two waiters started calling me big boss man, big <laughs> really? boss man. And I was like, what? It's an all-inclusive. There's nothing. How am I a big boss man? I have a Hawaiian shirt. And I wondered a little bit about, you know, what does that title mean in this case? And what does that identity mean for, for Maya herself? Mm-hmm. Well, this idea came to me, actually, it was based on an Indian reality show, which was called Big Boss. And so... Um, and, and again, it shows a sort of fluidity of cultures where in a lot of African nations, you will see a lot of Indian films being consumed, Indian movies, Indian products. And so I remember traveling extensively where people will just call out Indian actresses' names and ask me ask me if I'm one of them, which I wish I was, mm-hmm. but I'm not. Um, and so I, I sort of wanted to channel that where you know people get together and they watch this Indian show and then, of course, they change it with their French and it becomes Bigabos and, yeah. and she becomes that. Um, but also representative of what of the dynamic of people who are coming as aid workers who may actually not be very wealthy in our societies, but when they're working in communities that are very vulnerable, have a lot of power and um, have a higher status. I have to ask you about the expression um, that somebody meant well, right? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like a positive expression, but most of the time, the vast majority of times where it's used, the suggestion is that it may may have caused more harm than good. How do you see the title of that book, We Meant Well? I think most of us, I like to hope that most of us are well-meaning with whatever we do, with whatever work we take on. Um, But I think sometimes we can get caught up in our own practices and not look at the consequences of what we're doing. And I think humanitarian work, charity work is essential. I mean, I no way is this a takedown of that kind of world. I think we need charitable organizations. We need humanitarians to do the work that states fail to do. Um, However, I think we need a constant... Um, examination of ourselves and what is the impact that we are having, whether in the charitable world or in, in any kind of job that, that is service-oriented. If you're a doctor, a teacher, a caregiver, um, you need to constantly see how is the person that you're supposed to be supporting experiencing this, and there needs to be a constant learning. And so we meant well as, yes, okay, your premise and your intention might be there, but the outcome may be very different. We constantly need that self-analysis. You're answering that in in general terms, mm-hmm. but can I ask you specifically? Was that something that you saw often in your work that some you know, well-meaning people would do more harm than good? I think there's so many stories in aid where that happens. Um, sometimes it's just as the basis of uh, one-on-one relationships. I mean, when I go, my job is to go sit with communities, interview them, and sometimes I'm in the most vulnerable areas, um, and I could say and do anything that could hurt them. Um, and I really am conscious in the way that I interact and, you know, usually have a translator with me and so on. Um, but I've seen people refer to or discuss or talk to people in ways that are disrespectful or not taking into consideration the kinds of um, concerns that they have. So, yes, it is something I see and it is something that I want to constantly challenge. What pulled you to that kind of work 
to begin with, working with aid agencies across the world? Um, I suppose it's when I was a child, every summer or every two summers, we would go to Pakistan. And I grew up in France, so the, the differences between France and Pakistan were very shocking and startling sometimes, even within Pakistan, because you have some areas that are extremely affluent, and then you have some which are um, extremely vulnerable. And so I think that just created a sense of connectivity for me of how um, how can people be living in poverty when I'm not? Um, it's something I struggle with on a daily basis. It's something I struggle with in Toronto when we walk by and there's uh, people without homes on the street. Um, and so that was what drove me to aid. I didn't know how to sort of exist in this world uh, without being connected to people who are not living in the same circumstances that I am. Hmm. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about language because it really struck me as I was reading some of these, the choice of words that you use, and I, I noted a couple of them. I didn't want to mention too many. I want people to experience this. But when you talk about an aid worker, you said something about an, an aid worker who appeared to be sinking deeper into a malaise that every aid worker is well acquainted with. When life and death is our work, the first world is its parody. Another line, just a page after, is this talking about the curse of the elevated humanitarian to view poverty and violence as the only moral place to inhabit. I mean, I had to just go back and reread these a few times to be like, wow, I really want to digest these lines. All that to say your use of language is, I find it so powerful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> is that just something that comes naturally? Is that something you work at and you tweak away at before it's the exact right words? Or is that something that's been sitting there for a long time? I don't know. But I do think that speaking multiple languages helps with that. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad wrote Urdu poetry my whole life. Um, for those of people who don't know, like Urdu poets are a scene, you know, people get together on weekends and recite and sometimes have, you know, two, three hours of just recitation to each other. And so, and the use of meter and rhyme and all those things play a big part in that. The French language, extremely poetic. Um, I read in French. Uh, I listen to French radio a lot. So that sort of infuses that. And I think that combining with English becomes, you know, the book that you're reading mm -hmm. now. Power is a large theme of the novel, whether it's the power that foreigners have over local communities or a boss has over their employee or an aid worker has over a young girl's word. Why did you want to explore power dynamics in this novel, including who deserves what and who has the power to decide? I think I'm kind of obsessed with power dynamics. It's something I think about a lot. Power in families, powers in schools. Now I have a teenager uh, looking at you know the power of that a child can create and attract and, and others lose it. It's very interesting to me. Um, in this realm, I wanted to look at something that is considered so benign, which is charity, uh, and, and sort of flesh out the power dynamics that are in charity. Again, I think you know it's important to be charitable uh, and not dismiss charity. But the fact is that there's always a relationship. There's someone giving money or giving funds or giving support, and there's someone who's receiving. And that in of itself is not an equal relationship. So there's always going to be an imb imbalance there. And I wanted to tease that out a little bit, that this isn't a benign act. Um, there are interactions there that we kind of have to examine more closely, especially when we're supporting someone. There's also the idea of like the gratitude we expect sometimes from the most vulnerable, um, the role we, we see or prescribe to people who are receiving something. We expect them to be a certain way in their, in their reception of what we're giving them, and to just look at that a little bit more closely. A last question I wanted to ask you was this idea of being caught between two worlds or two sides of a story. This is a recurring theme in the book. Why was it important for you to examine so many complexities? Well, I mean, I travel back and forth from different places, uh, and I don't feel like I live between worlds. I feel like all of those places are connected. And sometimes when we live in Canada, we feel so divorced and so far from what's happening in other places. Uh, and I wanted to sort of bring this idea of connectivity, because, you know, sometimes you're an intimate act, like drinking a cup of coffee in the morning. I worked with uh, coffee farmers. And so I think of the coffee farmers that, you know, pick that coffee bean that's now in our cup. Or sometimes I'm traveling and I hear someone singing a Justin Bieber song somewhere. And so there's this constant fluidity and uh, movement between cultures and places that I wanted to capture. I feel like we see 
the developed and developing world is two very distinct things. And yet I think that our choices have so much influence that we don't realize. Um, and similarly, places all over the world are clothing us, dressing us, feeding us. And we don't see those intimate relationships that exist. Aram, I'm very happy for the early success that your book has already found. I'm even, I'm even happy that I learned your, your middle name is Shazia. So much <laughs> I learned about you. There's a novelist who lives inside this old friend of mine. Uh, congrats on all of it. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you for having me here. Aram Shazia Hassan is the author of We Meant Well. It was on the long list for the 2023 Giller Prize, and she spoke with me today in our Toronto studio. Hey, I'm Roald Wood. I'm a singer-songwriter from Ontario, Canada, currently reading a book by James Allen called As a Man Thinketh. Uh, I've been reading it many times uh, in my life, and it always seems to resonate and always seems to be important, and it's always by my bedside. It was written in the late 1800s, and it's all about the choosing of your thoughts and how those thoughts choose your perspective and how that perspective guides your life. So if you lead your life in an optimistic way, in a positive way, in a driven way, then the fruits of that labor, of those seeds that you sow, will come your way. And it's not like a vision quest. It's not you sit in a room and think happy thoughts and therefore you have a happy life. It's very much about you are the product of your thoughts. So if you believe in yourself, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you sit up in the morning that I want to write a song, well, unless you think that that is possible, then you don't see the potential of how that is possible. Therefore, you don't sit down to write that song. Um, it's that kind of philosophy. And it's very important in an artist-driven life to have that kind of philosophy because we have a lot of things against us um, in the arts of in terms of creativity. You know, we live in a social media-driven landscape where it's very much about what do I make to get attention? And I think that cuts off creativity. And I think if you set out with the intention of what do I make that I want to pay attention to or what am I paying attention to that inspires me to create something, then we make our best work. But I think it takes vigilance and I think it's a daily choice and those thoughts are a daily choice. And I'm certainly trying to give this philosophy to our boys because it's, it's steered me in a, a good path in life. I've probably given this book out to more people than I can even think of. It's always been my go-to, like you should read this book, you should pay attention to it. That was Royal Wood with Just Another Day from his EP of the same name. Dog-eared. 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 The books that never get old. Hi, I'm Nicholas Herring, author of Some Hellish. One book I return to again and again is 28 Artists and Two Saints by Joan Acuchella. It's a collection of her essays from her time at the New Yorker. She has pieces on Primo Levi, Joseph Roth. She has two essays on two saints, uh, Mary Magdalene and uh, Joan of Arc. I read this, I don't know, I want to say um, seven or eight years ago, and I'm, I'm just now rereading it, and it is, it's absolutely fantastic. She writes about artists in a way that will change your life. I, I mean, this book has stayed with me ever since I read it. And rereading it, I'm sort of flabbergasted by how much of this actually stayed with me. And I, I will say, too, I don't know anything about ballet or dancing, but she has about 10 essays in this book on dancing and dancers, and these essays are fantastic. Yeah, they're just, they're just mesmerizing. And she has a way of writing about a person's entire life. She's able to write about people's spirit, you know. Uh, the vast majority of people in these essays, you know, they live through incredible hardships and pain and suffering, and yet they persist. And it's, it's very, very inspiring. The other thing that I find quite admirable about this collection of essays is that you can travel the whole world and you get to meet people from all over, from different backgrounds, with different values. It's really quite an astonishing book. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. 
I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. author of Sunshine Nails, and you're listening to The Next Chapter on CBC Radio 1. I'm joined now by my colleague and Next Chapter contributor Ryan B. Patrick. He's here today to tell us about the interview he did with Don Gilmore about his new novel, Breaking and Entering. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ellie. How's it going? It's good. I didn't spend the last few days reading about uh, criminal activity, although, mm. I mean, I don't know enough about the book to know if that's what this is about, but uh, yeah, tell us about it. I would say it's about that of sorts. It's about a young woman named, uh, older woman named B. This is by Don Gilmore. He's the author of three earlier no- earlier novels. He won the Governor General's Award for nonfiction for his memoir, To the River. Now he's back with Breaking and Entering. It's a very fascinating book about a woman named B. B. She's in her, she tur- just turned 50. And then she's kind of going through that whole midlife crisis kind of thing. What's next? Do you think you get married? You have the kids? You have the house? And then you're feeling like you want something more. So B wants something more. And she finds herself hooking up with this group that is all about lock picking. And, and then, <laughs> it's very, very interesting. Some people get a Ferrari. As some one people, does. Okay, as one does. Yeah. And then it's about um, what happens at that phase in life and, and, and what do you want to do with your life? And then she finds herself kind of, it's kind of voyeuristic in scope. She's breaking and entering to houses, kind of uh, investigating what's in there, living their lives, so to speak. It's a very fascinating book. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Let's have a listen to it. This is Ryan in conversation with Don Gilmore about breaking and entering. Hello, Don. Welcome back to the next chapter. Thank you for having me. So, Don, let's set this up. You have the new novel, Breaking and Entering. Um, You're essentially taking on that midlife trope. Uh, When I think about someone at midlife, uh, and that happens to your protagonist, B. Billings, it reminds me of that famous poem, Harlem, by Langston Hughes. Have you heard that poem? I haven't. It's such like a, a beautiful poem, and it kind of looks at the idea of a dream deferred or a dream delayed, of lived, like, living a life and not doing what you think you should have kind of thing. What, what are these midlife circumstances or emotions that kind of stop Beatrice, your protagonist, in, in her tracks? Well, I think, you know, the 50s are kind of, I think, the first decade that's a real reckoning. You mm-hmm. know, we have a sort of false start of the 30s and 40s, but we still think all this possibility is is uh, lurking in the future. And I think the 50s is really when you start to assess um, with a more pragmatic eye. And so she's looking at a situation where she has a stale marriage and, you know, her son's away at university and um, her mother is ailing with dementia and she has a complicated relationship with her sister, and, and her business isn't doing brilliantly. So she's got all these sort of pressures working on her. Right. So I kind of find this this kind of phase of life fascinating. It's like they were promised everything. You go to school, you have kids, you have the house, and then uh, you, before you know it, you're 50 years old, and it's like, what's happening? I, I was promised certain things in life, and then <laughs> this is my life, and there, it feels so empty. Like, what is this what B's thinking in terms of her everyday quotidian world? Yeah, I think it is because, you know, the the boomer generation, I think, is the generation that had the most expectations of any generation. And as, as a result, I think we also have the greatest amount of disappointment because mm. we thought things would be so great. And then, you know, we found out maybe we weren't quite as different as we thought from previous generations. Mm-hmm. So we have B, her husband, and her friends group. They're experiencing that middle age ennui or this kind of stasis. Do you think men and women kind of experience that feeling differently? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I suspect so. And I one of the reasons I wanted to explore this through a female perspective was I'd had discussions with female friends, uh, you know, years ago when they were talking about this idea of being invisible in the you know in their fifties. You turn fifty mm-hmm. and suddenly you you vanish and. Um, so I wanted to explore that theme. I think in terms of that sort of invisibility, I think there is a difference between uh, men and women in that 
that we weren't all that visible to begin with. Um, and so it's more of a lateral move, you know, when we're in our 50s. But I think that notion of invisibility, uh, and she, you know, she talks about it in the book, to taking it to its sort of Zen pinnacle, that she could actually break into houses and no one would see her, even if they were sitting there in their living room. And she walked in and, and wandered off, you know, with their wine collection. Mm. So I want to talk about that, the whole lock picking and breaking and entering, which is a, kind of <laughs> denotes the title of your book. But was it fun or eye-opening um, exploring or writing a female protagonist? It was because I think when you, you know, when you have a male protagonist, um, you can kind of mine your own experience. You can, or at least go into your own masculine psyche. And mm. with a female character, you can't do that. So I think in a way it's more challenging. And I think that the female character grew more incrementally, you know, that you you often start with a, a fairly fully fleshed out male protagonist. But with B, it was more a question of kind of understanding her as I went along in the mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about lock picking. B doesn't dye her hair. She's having this kind of crisis turning 50. She doesn't get a sports car. Uh, she turns to lock picking. She, she sees some YouTube videos online that kind of tweaks her interests and find, kind of falls into this whole world of lock picking and lock picking communities. Um, how did you fall into this world? How did you learn about lock picking as this kind of uh, genre, not necessarily genre, like this kind of community of people that go out and learn more about breaking and uh, picking locks? Well, years ago, I wrote a short story that had uh, the main character was a young man who was, in fact, a thief. And he, he would tell his wife every morning he'd leave for work and tell her that he worked at a security company. And then he would go out and break into houses. And so I'd actually <laughs> looked into it a bit with that story. And that story was sort of one of the bases for this. I thought, well, I'll go back to that, revisit it through a female gaze. But I looked at it a bit back then, and then I went back and looked at it some more with the novel. And there's, I mean, there's hundreds of lockpicking clubs in North America, and there's a bunch in Toronto. And, um, you know, you have to wonder what actually brings people to those clubs because I assume that, I mean, some of them are for the reasons that are advertised on the yeah. websites, which is escape and, you know, this sort of sense of community. But I have to assume some of them are using it for, you know, illegal <laughs> purposes. Yeah, term. exactly. So, <laughs> And I went in, like, my own rabbit hole of, like, these YouTube videos or some. There's this famous lock-picking guy. He gives them, like, the most recent lock, the high newfangled lock, and he breaks it in a matter of minutes. So I, I, I can see where B's coming from. But why did you kind of make B that uh, lock-picking? Why did you make that her transgression? Well, the what it comes from is, you know, she's sitting in her uh, art gallery that's not doing too well, and she just Googles the word escape, this is sort of wanting to escape from everything, from from most parts of her life. And what comes up next is this you you know YouTube video about picking locks, and that kind of gets her you know down that path. Uh, and then she finds she's better at it than she thought, mm-hmm. and it it kind of goes from there. I want to explore that a bit more, but let's talk about the backdrop, everything that's happening. It's in Toronto. It's like the hottest summer on record. It's like this post-apocalyptic kind of end-of-day scenario, that kind of hot. How does this kind of underscore her state of mind? Well, I think the apocalyptic aspect, which, you know, it is the hottest summer in the history of Toronto. And even though we didn't actually have that this year, no, the, definitely not. <laughs> the, the rest of the world seemed to have it. Uh, so I kind of invested B with some of my own climate anxiety, and you know, which is... Uh, a little better than it was. But, you know, especially when the kids were young, you just start to, you know, I would Google to see what the hottest city in the world was on any given day, and Mm. I would be checking the melt rate of glaciers. And um, you're just wondering what kind of world your kids are going to end up in. And so B has got that going on. And when she breaks into houses, one of the things she realizes is that there's people preparing for this sort of apocalypse and that she's not as prepared as others. Yeah. So I want to talk about how B breaks into these houses because there's this voyeuristic element to that. But I want to talk about that aspect you mentioned about the kids aren't necessarily all all right in terms of you plant seeds. You have the climate change thing happening in the background. You have B's son, Thomas, who's having issues with school and stuff like that. And then you allude to some of the houses that she breaks into. Some of these younger generations aren't doing all right in terms of being saddled with debt or what have you. What's your mindset in terms of, is this like the first generations doing worse than the previous one? Is that what we're getting at here? Yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, especially in, in big cities in, in Canada, but, you know, Vancouver and Toronto in particular, where, 
you wonder, you know, my kids are in their 20s now, but, you know, you wonder how on earth will they be able to afford to buy mm -hmm. a house in Toronto unless they, you know, get a job as a neurosurgeon or win the lottery. <laughs> and um, so I think that that's true. And we, we were the last generation to do better, I think. And um, although not as you know, not as well as we thought, but I think it has been a real challenge for the generations behind us. Mm. So let's talk about the lock picking. She's picking locks, entering people's houses, kind of seeing what's inside. But lock picking has this, uh, requires a very light and sensitive touch in terms of that satisfaction of like feeling the pins and the mechanisms. It's pretty technical, but um, what was it like for you to kind of learn that? And how, how deep in the weeds did you want to get in terms of that technical, technical aspects of, the, of it all? Well, you know, I wanted to uh, I wanted to communicate the sense that I knew how to break into houses. In fact, I don't. Um, but uh, <laughs> I did try with a hairpin on our own door, and it was, you know, uh, exercise and frustration. But all the I did put all the detail that I learned online, basically. Mm. And so I had this sense in my head of exactly how it works, but I wasn't able to translate that into actual action. So, <laughs> so ma master lock yeah. picking is not in your future. No, no. <laughs> So she doesn't just pick locks. She uses a skill to break into people's houses. It's kind of like a, a release valve. Why is she doing this? Why is it such a thrill for her? I think that's part of the reason that it is a thrill. It, there's so much kind of ennui in the rest of her life. And here is something that gets her heart beating faster. And just for the kind of danger of it, there's something there for her. And, and, and as a way to sort of redefine herself as someone who has this sort of private life and this secret, um, that there's something below the surface that other people aren't seeing. Mm -hmm. So, Don, your novel's called Breaking and Entering. Um, there's other things happening in Bee's life. Her mother has dementia. Her only child, which I alluded to, Thomas, has grown up and away at university. So she's pretty sad about these things, but she has a, this funny, almost sardonic way of looking at life. How, how fun was it kind of to enter Bee's mind and project her thought bubbles? Um, you know, it, it was fun, especially when, uh, at one point, I, I didn't know if she would have any siblings. Once the sister came in, and the kind of byplay and the dialogue between those two, um, that helped to define, I think, both characters. But it also was, you know, f those were fun parts to write for the mm. most part. Mm. So you mentioned um, earlier that you spoke to lots of people in terms of getting into the, the mindset of the character of B. It was kind of informed by countless conversations that you had with your women friends. What was the most interesting thing you heard when you had those conversations? Well, you know, one of the things, uh, and I, I uh, there's a scene in the book where B is at her 50th birthday party, and uh, the caterer gives her a brownie that has marijuana in it, and she doesn't realize, and she takes a few bites, and she becomes incredibly stoned. And this happened to a friend of mine who was leaving the house one morning, and there was banana bread sitting on the counter, and she took a couple of slices. And it turned out it was a gift for her teenage son, oh. and it was filled with THC. And she got extraordinarily stoned and thought she was having a stroke, in mm. fact, and um, ended up with the emergency uh, people, like, you know, taking care of her. And she was, she was stoned for a couple of days. Um, <laughs> and I'd heard two other people that had a similar story. And so um, I incorporated those sorts of things in the book. But in terms of kind of a broader female sensibility, you know, I think it was really just this idea of what does, uh, what does the next step look like when you're, you know, a after the age of 50 and sitting in these married, or, you know, especially for people who are, you know, newly divorced, and what is this next chapter going to look like? And so I tried to incorporate some of those conversations into the character of B. Mm. Thank you, Don. Thanks so much for the conversation, and thanks for this novel. Thank you. Don Gilmore is the author of Breaking and Entering. He spoke with our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. Saeed Mdahoma is a pastry nerd, and he's also the pastry nerd. You can find him under that name online where he shares his love for all things pastry. Saeed came to Calgary to work as a neuroscience researcher a number of years ago. I guess that's the nerd part. But he turned his love of creating and baking desserts into his day job. He now teaches his techniques and shares recipes on all kinds of platforms. He joins me today from Calgary to recommend three cookbooks. Hello, Saeed. Welcome to the next chapter. 
Hello, Ali. How are you doing? Very good. And I'm sure uh, I will feel uh, even more enlightened after this conversation. I wanted to ask you, before we get into your book recommendations, tell me about your pastry journey, this, this journey you've been on. How did it start? So it actually started when I moved to Calgary about eight years ago. So I was born and raised in Paris. And when I moved here, I started missing French pastries so much that I decided to bake them on my own. And it was a steep learning curve because pastry is science. But after a few years of, you know, trying and dedicating myself to the craft, I got better and better to the point that three years ago, I decided to quit my career as a neuroscientist and fully dedicate my time to the art of pastry. This is very interesting. I mean, I know food can taste like home. We all know that, right? So I I understand the longing to taste your French pastries. I'm from Quebec, and there was a certain, you know, purity of croissants when I when you know from when you get them in Montreal where you come to Ontario you have to search a little bit more but how do you explain how much you loved doing it I think what I really love about making pastries it's how precise it is just like in science in my previous mm-hmm. career but also what I love about it is sharing when you make a beautiful cake and you get to share it with your friends and the family and enjoy that time together is it's one of the most beautiful things that can happen in a room i really love sharing my pastries with people it's very interesting you say baking uh, you know they say that baking is a science do you feel like your science training helped you for this creation of uh, of recipes i definitely think so there's you know when you're baking one of the biggest part of baking is being first really organized like you would be in a science lab but also about being precise everything has to be weighted everything has to be uh, incorporated in the right order and that's what makes a beautiful pastry or a beautiful experiment in a science lab Mm. and you actually blend a couple of food traditions in your recipes and in your baking can you tell us about that blend Yes, definitely. So I was born and raised in Paris, but my parents are from Comoros, which is a small island in East Africa. And Comoros is really well known for their spices, whether it's cinnamon, vanilla, and many other spices there. So I really love incorporating those spices into my French baking. So I love having, you know, that mix that blending of cultures into what I bake on a daily basis. We're we're at a risk for the grumbling from my stomach to get louder than my <laughs> own voice here, but uh, but we'll we'll push ahead. Sayed, tell me what the first cookbook is that you want to talk to uh, to to us about today. So the first book I want to talk about is called Tawau: Progressive Indigenous Cuisine by Chef Shen Chartron. So Chef Chef Chartrand is a Plains Cree chef in Alberta who, I quote, cares about making a difference in the lives of others through good food that honors and highlights what indigenous cuisine really means. Through this book, you get to know Shen's journey from his upbringing in Alberta, where he used to hunt with his family, to becoming a chef at his own restaurant, SC. In the book, you can find lots of tasty dishes like elk tenderloin with grilled oyster mushroom that I just met last weekend and it was delicious or bison strip loin with celery cream and apple onion relish. The sweet and savory trick on that dish was marvelous. Hmm. And this cookbook is a nod to indigenous food and culture that I believe every food enthusiast should have. Yeah, What was your uh, takeaway from this cookbook in terms of your understanding of First Nations food traditions in this country? I think what I gathered from that book is the fact that, first of all, unfortunately, I didn't know enough about indigenous food and indigenous ingredients. I learned about so many ingredients that are, you know, not really highlighted in traditional food cuisine. Um, I had, for example, before having that cookbook, I had never made anything with elk before. And, you know, it's gamey, it's tasty, and with a good berry sauce, it's absolutely amazing. Very nice. What is next on the list? Next on the list is a book about Mexico. 
So we Canadians love going to Mexico during the cold days, but with this book, you'll get Mexico right to your place. And this book is called Mi Cocina. It's by Rick Martinez, a Mexican-American classically trained chef who visited all of Mexico states and tested the best dishes the country has to offer. And he compiled all of he compiled his version of all those dishes in this beautiful book. In this book, you can find recipes to make your own tacos from scratch, all the famous Mexican salsas, but also more traditional dishes that I used to enjoy when I was in Mexico, such as carne asada or grilled meat. Yeah, this is like uh, recommended as one of the best cookbooks of the year. He goes across 32 states of Mexico, as you mentioned. You've been to Mexico yourself, Said? Yeah, I've been to Mexico two times, and I also had a PhD exchange in Mexico City. So I stayed there for a few weeks to work in a Mexican lab, which was a great experience. It was about 10 years ago. Very nice. This book, was it a, was it a walk down memory lane for you, or was it an introduction to new food that you didn't have in, the, in those visits? Actually, both. So there was a dish that I really loved when I was in Mexico for my PhD exchange, which is called Pescado a la Veracruzana. Mm. And it's uh, grilled fish, basically, with peppers. Beautiful, beautiful dish that I had once in Mexico. So you can't imagine how happy I was when I saw a version of this dish in Rick Martinez's book and was able to do it myself. Very nice. So this is a book you will uh, use to cook from frequently? Oh, um, so far I've only made three recipes from the book. I made some salsa, uh, guacamole, I made the pescado a la veracruzana, and also the grilled meat, the carne asada. Very nice. You're just getting started. <laughs> What is the final book on your list? So the final book uh, on my list is by Canadian pastry chef extraordinaire Anna Olson. The book is called Baking Wisdom. And it's a book that I really enjoyed, most of all because, well, baking is right up in my alley. This is something that I really enjoy. And I always like to see what other pastry chefs make and bake from there at their home. It felt really nostalgic to me as it contains many desserts that I grew up eating in France. Cream puff, pies, bread, cookies, everything is in it. And if there is one thing that you should try from this book, then test the recipe of one of my favorite desserts, the Parisian flan. It's very difficult to find in Canada. And I don't understand why, because it's a really tasty and kind of easy dessert to make. And I really love the book because it's really detailed. So if you're an amateur baker and you're afraid of baking for the first time, everything is detailed. Anna Olson clearly wants to make sure that you will succeed when making those pastries. I have to share something with you here, Saeed. I, uh, I used to sit at home. So I have a, a chef background, and I used to sit at home watching Anna Olson on the Food Network, and she had a show called Sugar. And I dreamt of having a show called Spice. Ooh. And we even, we filmed it, the same thing, we deal with one spice every episode. And um, it failed, we don't have to go into that. It, it was not accepted, but, <laughs> but it was, uh, I, I, have a, I have a real soft spot for Anna Olsen. She's quite an inspiration. Tell me about this uh, flan a little bit. How is this, uh, how is this so, made? Why is it such a memorable dish in this book? So for me, the Parisian flan, the reason why it evokes so many memories is because it's a dessert that every French school student will have in the morning before going to school. You'll go to the bakery and it's irresistible. First of all, because it's made of puff pastry, so there's a really beautiful buttery layer on the, at the bottom of the cake. And on top of that buttery puff pastry, you have this amazing creamy uh, custard that is made with vanilla. And the combination of that creamy custard with that buttery puff pastry is something that I always love mm. and I always go to. And you're telling me that is the start of people's day? That sounds like the end of a day. For me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, th the thing with French people is that there's room for pastry at the start, in the middle, and at the end of the day. There's never <laughs> enough room for pastry. There's always room for pastry, I mean. Thank you, Saeed. I wanted to ask you one last question about cookbooks, and, and these cookbooks in, in particular, are they something that change your approach to food? Are you, you know, constantly learning from books like this and then 
using the things you learn in your own, um, you know, the pastry nerd uh, videos and tips and techniques? Yes, definitely, because um, let's just talk about the use of spices by Rick Martinez. And you were talking about how you wanted to maybe have a TV show about spice. But when you look at the book and when you look at the very ingenious use of spices in, by, in Mexico, it definitely made me think, what if I use those spices in pastries as well? Mm-hmm. You know, have pastries, dessert that would be spicier that can, for example, I really love chocolate mousse. But what about chocolate mousse with ancho chile? And uh, that would be maybe add some depth to the chocolate mousse give something that will make you crave even more for that mousse. Mm. So I always think about how I can incorporate some of those techniques that you see in these books, some of those spices, and see if I can make them my own. Obviously, always coding and you know referring to the original piece of inspiration. That's very interesting. So uh, there's probably some French chefs who don't veer in that direction, right? They're purists, and it's like, this is the way this must be made. <laughs> you have a more sort of open approach to the way you make things. That's right. Is that right? I would say that um, when cooking or baking, it's always important to kind of dive into what is it that makes you, you. And for me, what makes me, me is, yes, I'm French and I love baking French pastries, but I'm also Comorian. So it's always about incorporating who I am into what I cook or what I bake. And this is what makes everybody special. If you're doing that, this is what's going to make you special. And I think people baking French pastries should all do that. Very wise words. Thank you so much for this chat and these recommendations, Saeed. Thank you so much, Ali. You can find Saeed Mdohoma at thepastrynerd.com. And the cookbooks he talked about today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. And my thanks this week to Zoe Caragianis, Emily Carvesio, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, I'll speak with Mai Nguyen about her charming book, Sunshine Nails. It's about a Vietnamese-Canadian family and their no-frills nail salon. And Ryan will talk with Casey Platt about her book, On Community. It's a probing look at the hits and misses of forming bonds with others. I'm Ali Hassan, and thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.